Welcome into the Esports Network podcast where we talk the stories of esports, the business side of esports, the players, the teams, you know, the actual families of esports that come together and, and kind of make esports what it is. And sometimes we don't even talk about esports that much. We talk about the games behind the scenes. And, you know, other times we talk about how we play those games. And here to help me talk about that today, let's welcome in Scott Novus, the founder of Game Truck and Bravest Esports. Uh, Scott, thank you for, for carving some time out of your very busy schedule to come on the show. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to uh, spend the time with you. So in case you don't know, like I said, he's the Game Truck founder. You've worked at uh, you've worked with Walt Disney, with Pixar, THQ as game developer. Now you're you're moving on to Game Truck and Bravest Esports. Bravest Esports, of course, your production side of things. You're catering to, you know, the, the teens, the college side of, of, of esports. You're you're really tailoring to that kind of event uh, a mindset for people. You just had what a 250 kid Mario Kart tournament for the boys and girls club a few months back. 15 K. Well, that was a little bit further than that, but yeah, that was a really big event. But yeah, our our goal is to create an environment where you could make a friend. Exactly. So that's the kind of events we want to host. And so, I mean, it's just absolutely uh, insanely. Of course, my wife loves game trucks. She ordered. She's a teacher, so she gets that whenever <laughs> she has the ability to. Because you know. Texas schools love throwing money at anything, and <laughs> Game Truck is one of those things they, they, they throw money at. But uh, let's talk about, about you, Scott, specifically. Just in terms of, of gaming, right? Your first big experience in the industry, uh, you were the general manager for Rainbow Studios, right? Produced titles like ATV Off-Road Fury, Motocross Madness, Star Wars Racer, so many, so many like uh, classic, uh, uh, I, I guess, arcade games for me that I played at my cousin's house all the time. I didn't have the crazy good system. But what was the, the first deep dive into game development like for you? Okay. So there were two stories. So one of them, um, I was a, I guess a rising star at Motorola. Um, and I knew somebody that had worked at rainbow studios and the video game industry was like, we made chips that went into consoles or like what games, what? And, um, in that year, they held E3 was at the Marconi Center in San Francisco. Literally the weekend before was this big semiconductor trade show. So you're talking a bunch of people with gray hair like me wandering <laughs> around talking about performance and plastic package. Couldn't be more exciting, right? The next weekend was the launch of Sega's Dreamcast. So I'm standing in a completely transformed hall, smoking cigars, drinking cognac, playing video games. And I'm like, how much do I have to pay you to work here? <laughs> like, I just want to be in this industry. Like, this is an industry that manufactures fun. And I was came on an industry that was all about bleeding the fun out of everything they touched. Um, and what it turned into was I jumped in and joined this little company called Rainbow Studios, which was like 20 people trying to be the next Pixar and 12 people trying to become the next Blizzard. And it was young guys drinking Jolt Cola, making no money at all. And there was no management, no process. And they were right on the verge. They had just published Motocross Madness. and It was a hit. And it was like, oh, God, what do we do? And I was like, well, we hire people. And they're like, why don't you come in and help us do that? I'm like, okay, I, I can find people that want to make games. And we just started growing like crazy. And I think for me, the first year I had the job, and this was a carryover from corporate America, as I was the president of engineering, I didn't even have gaming in my title. And then one night I started playing, oh, it was that RTS from Microsoft, um, Age of Empires. Yes. Is I got caught late by my team playing Age of Empires. Like, can we join you? I'm like, 
you can do that? <laughs> we're up all night playing games. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the VP of games. I'm, I'm the game. I'm the, I'm the game guy. So that was it. Like once I was up all night playing games with those guys, I was like, yeah, I'm a gamer. Let's go. Oh, wow. And so you, you spent seven ish years or so, I guess a little bit more than that uh, at rainbow studios. So, I mean, what was the most valuable thing you kept from your time there? Was it, you know, how to manage a team or, I mean, I just, that's a, that's a broad question, right? So yeah, there was a, I mean, I learned a lot and there were so many things. And I think the biggest lesson that I, I left with was it matters so much more who you sit with and not where you sit. Mm-hmm. And it was a, uh, a little bit of uh, hubris on my part. I'd gotten to rainbow got very big, very fast. And it was sort of like, we could do anything. Well, it turns out we couldn't. Hmm. Um, and we, you know, stepped up to some things that were a real challenge. And, you know, I, I, one, the other lesson is pick a side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this sort of, you know, it's a natural if you're a people pleaser, if you want to make people happy. And if you go into entertainment, you must like to make people happy. Um, and I was trying to, yeah, I, I joke about this frequently is if you're not going to pick a side, you're going to try to make both sides happy. That is mm-hmm. a really quick path to become a consultant um, because that's what a lot of consultants are is auto work executives. Yes. Um, I hit a point where um, trying to you know compromise between the studio, all of my uh, bosses, every day I reported to was in California. So I became the bridge that was the disconnect. Then I was the disconnect that it was like, I should have just picked one side and stuck to it. And that, you know, loyalty matters. Mm-hmm. And uh, that became something that I became very, it, it worked out much better for me going forward. Uh, but at that point um, I decided it was time to move on. Uh, a saying from my dad, you put one too many nails in the tree, you can pull them out, but you still might kill the tree. And I put a few nails in a few trees. And I was like, <laughs> you know, uh, this is, uh, it's time to move on. And, uh, THQ was super cool about it. Um, you know, discovered that if you get to a certain level, they'll actually pay you to leave. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew, right? <laughs> Who knew that, right? Yeah, here you go. Um, and so I had a chance to start over and Disney knocked on my door saying, Hey, that cars thing's really cool. Could you help us do that? I'm like, I'd be glad to. Um, and that was an absolute, uh, amazing, amazing experience getting to work for the Walt Disney company. I mean, let's transition right into that, right? Do you serve as there? I guess the, what was the, what was the official position with Disney interactive and, and, and fall line studios? Uh, VP of handheld studios. So we, I started their Nintendo oh, center of excellence. Oh my goodness. You, you, you're telling me you created my entire childhood of, of like the Incredibles and, <laughs> and the, and cars and finding Nemo video games on the, on the game boy, the DS. We did the, the cars was our cars was our, uh, our big one. So we did cars. Uh, but when I got over, we had picked up uh, the Chronicles of Narnia was oh, the first yes. title that we started working on. Goodness. And then it was like toy story three. was like, this is going to be the thing. And we were, um, a sister studio to Avalanche that mm-hmm. went on to start the whole uh, Disney Infinity, the whole Toys to Life thing was just an amazing, it was incredible. I mean, it was such a creative organization. I mean, we got to spend, one of my highlights of working with Disney was the day we got to spend with Ken Robbins. Oh, wow. So he has like the n- one, two, or three, it varies, top TED Talks of all time. And there's Disney going, get him for the whole day. Bring him in. We need to talk about creativity. <laughs> and it was incredible. And it, it, it was, um, and so one thing I would say 
that um, I heard Steve Martin say this, and it was something we learned from Ken Robbins, but Steve Martin said it better. There's room for you here. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of the coolest things because, like, we had a room full of super creative people, and we did these visual resumes, and nobody came from the same background, not one person. Like, we all took our own path to get there. And it really was, um, I don't like to use the word passion a lot, but if you're like interested to the point that you just can't let it go, there's room for you. Mm-hmm. You'll find a space. Um, and I could never have scripted how I ended up in that room with that incredible group of people. Um, but it was, uh, it really stuck with me that. You know, follow your curiosity, follow your, uh, your, your interest. It'll lead you to interesting places. No, for sure. And an interesting place at Disney with, you know, the, the mass resources they had at hand to kind of bring on Ken Robbins for a whole day. I mean, not right. very often they can do that, but, uh, you, you start up game truck at the tail end of your game development career. I mean, you're working at Disney, you start up this company at the same time. What was the biggest, uh, I guess, motivation? in creating something so unique and, and outside the box, pretty much it's, it's an arcade on wheels, right? So what right. was the biggest motivation behind creating an, an arcade on wheels? So what, where that came from is a couple of things. Um, being a corporate executive isn't uh, always all sunshine and roses. Yes. You get paid very well. However, um, you give up a lot. And that happened to be like never seeing my family. Um, so I was on the road all the time. I was working remotely uh, you start down that path, you need to relocate a lot. Just look up a lot of video game executives. Mm-hmm. They're mobile. And um, it was personally important to me to keep my family stable. And I'm like, and the other thing is, and I learned this at Motorola, nobody can write off money like a big company. Mm-hmm. Um, EA made an art of buying studios for really big numbers and then just shuttering them. Yep. Um, it was crazy to watch. And in the time that I started Game Truck till today, Disney built, dismantled, built, and dismantled video game divisions three times. Mm-hmm. It's just not their wheelhouse. It's part of what they do, but it's not their core strategy. And so watching sort of this fluctuations happen, um, I'm like, the other thing was watching the budgets of the games. I got into the game industry when we had $1.2 million dollars to make motocross madness. Then we got the unbelievable amount of 3 million to make wow. uh, ATV off-road fury, which was an incredible amount of money. And we were working on a game. Um, at Disney it was $30 million budget. You know how many good $30 million ideas there are? None. <laughs> That's why there's so few new games. They're all coming from Indies. Like nobody wants to write that check. Yeah. So you, you take the, you know, the call of duty, you take the giant brands and you just keep putting the money back into them because people know they like them and they can make them again. And, but as a, a software, like there was a title Turok. Mm-hmm. Remember Turok? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Now I don't mean to, uh, that team worked really hard on it. I say this as a joke and as a game industry, this is a bit mean. So please forgive me, but you could put $60 million in a parking lot and set it on fire and probably had as much fun. It was rough, right? It was, they go from zero to a fully staffed studio, first game, crazy expectations. They launch this and it just doesn't resonate and you lose that kind of money. And that's a tough, that's a tough collar to wear. Yeah. And those are the size bets people were placing. And it's like, I thought if I had $60 million, why am I working? (laughs) (laughs) So, I step back and I'm like, what could I do that's in the game industry? What, what do I know? And I, I'm big into the user experience, like uh, removing friction um, mm-hmm. to play. 
and arcades died. Like they were just dead, you know, like what happened? So I did a bunch of research into that. And I started looking at macro trends and the macro trends were such that pictures of missing children on milk cartons scared a generation of parents to need to know where their kids were at all times. Right. So two things killed arcades. One, the games got so good that the arcades stopped buying new new cabinets. They Mm -hmm. made so much money with what they had, they didn't need a new one. That's bad news if you're a game developer. If you're a game developer and your number of customer just stops buying from you because they're making so much money with what they have, what do you do? And that industry fractionated. It went into two places. Half those people started making slot machines. That's where all your great video slot machines and poker games come from in the casinos. And they did really well there. The other half went into home consoles. And that fundamentally changed the way the games are made. Instead of eating a quarter, they now need to eat a $50 bill because that's what the carts cost. Mm -hmm. So the core experience goes from a pick up and play 22 to three minute experience to now 20 to 30 minutes minimum to warm up to play. And people are expecting 80 or hundred hours of entertainment. The the games are constructed completely differently. And when Sony shows up with a PlayStation going, we have 600 megabytes, which sounds pathetic today, but at the time (laughs) I was like, you you know, you have a 500 K cart to 600 megabytes. You could put video on that, you know, it's 3d people lost their minds we're never going back. So the games became significantly more sophisticated and development shifted. The cabinets just didn't make sense anymore. Now what? So games lost that public space where people could come together and play. And the parents kept all those kids at home. So if you wanted to play the best games with your best friends, we needed to take the games to you. What could do that? And I was looking at like the whole land uh, local area network thing blew up in Korea. Mm-hmm. And it was like, we brought it here, <laughs> but Americans don't want to sit in the, uh, we have nice homes. Yeah. And, and that's just the truth. Like we cocoon, we have great homes. So we don't want to sit in a mall and play games. We want to sit in our, our house and our gaming chair and this great rig. Um, how could we play with friends? And I'm like, we got to bring them the living room. And so that was the idea. Let's take a living room. We'll put everything in it you need to play. And the tipping point for me in 2005, more players played a shooter with a gamepad than keyboard and mouse. Oh, because of Halo. Oh, man. Okay. People will do this. And Halo, you could system link 16 people together. So I could have four giant TVs, four consoles, and 16 people playing together. I can tell you, I built that in my garage, and kids would come over. And we'd play for hours. And I'm like, we have something. And when you looked at what was available for boys' parties, girls have like a million options. They're like princess parties. And there's like the, the American Doll Company. And all the, and boys have like bowling and laser tag. That was it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I'm like, well, let's do video games. So um, we put together the first truck and did the first party in early 2006. And then by word of mouth, it just spread. And it became – so I didn't really have this big plan it was more like if I could get a couple of these and keep them busy, <laughs> um, I think I could pay my mortgage and that would be okay. Um, and you know, it took a while and then it was like, it was everywhere. And mm-hmm. we started franchising and as they say, the rest is history. That was 15 years ago. That, I mean, that's insane. Let me tell you, like the first time I saw a game trick was the end of my, I guess, high school junior year and in Texas. And I was just like, that's insane. This is, you know, that's, that's so cool. I would have loved that, you know, five years ago when I was 10 years old or something, and that would have been great. And so to see it grow from that, you know, that small local opera- operation, in, you know, out of Arizona. I literally built it in my garage. No insane. Joke. 
insane. Just and to see you know buy up the first trucks, stuff them full of consoles and, and everything, and just bring that whole nationwide coast to coast for franchises. That is absolutely insane. I mean, that's that's just crazy to me. So I mean. So quick question, just for my end. Um, I mean, you, you move from game development and marketing kind of, uh, you know, the, the games you make to an entertainment and more of a, a human connected industry. Would, right. would you say it's like a more fulfilling path you took? Because you're already making the money from, you know, Disney and all that. And now you, you kind of move into a more fulfilling, purposeful job. You know, it was <clears throat> it took me a while because it was such a massive shift in identity is when you're running development teams and working with, you know, I, I love working with engineers and artists. Like that was such a great uh, opportunity to do that. But over time that evolved into becoming my job was spreadsheets, you know, budgets and mm-hmm. endless meetings and um, getting back down to actually interacting directly with people and really um, where, where it tipped for me, I was working a party And this 12-year-old kid got up in front of all of his friends, walked the length of the trailer, hugged his mom and said, this is the greatest party I ever had. And she burst into tears. And I'm like, wait a minute, something's going on here. Wow. And it's more than just playing games. Like there's some connection here um, that I don't fully understand. And it took me a while to put it together, but I felt like I was onto something important. Like, yeah, it's fun. And we like playing games, but there's, there's still a very deep friction between parents and kids around gaming Mm -hmm. and really over the last like five years, I've gotten, I think very clear about what that is and what we could do about it. And so for me, yes, it did become, I mean, over 10 million kids have been entertained and and had birthday parties. I got a funny, a great email from somebody who's like in their thirties that had like one of the very first game truck parties in Georgia. And it was like party number two. And they're just like, that's all my bragging rights. It's just like this crazy thing. But it's really the relationship in the family and Mm -hmm. gaming has evolved to this point where I think a lot of parents are afraid of it. They're deeply afraid of it and they don't understand it. Mm. And the problem is that fear gets projected onto their kids. And it's like anything we can do to heal that wound, I think is really, really valuable. And, And so that's if I have a mission, that's my mission is that's why I focus on human connection. I want to use games because that's the stereotype, right? Games yeah. isolate kids. The lonely gamer in the basement, like, well, stop. Like, you know, gaming is everyone. We all game and we all game differently. And we can use gaming to create more connections for people. And that really became um, the impetus for what launched the esports company grew out of. We would see these coaches. So think about it. Mm-hmm. You have an adult who's very good at video games and likes video games. They are a professional gamer. They're paid to play video games and be good at games and help other people play games. And we always look for a very special kind of gamer. We call them the musician. The musician is good at what they do for their enjoyment and the enjoyment of others. Mm. And so the game trick staff is like that. They love to play games and they love to share what they know with other people. So they're entertainers and gamers. And I think those are probably your best personalities and the most successful esport people have that element about them. It's not just only winning. It's winning in a way that people invite you back to keep playing. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it's beautiful <laughs> to have an adult validate a kid's interest in gaming was profound and the kids never forgot it. And I realized 
maybe we need to spend more than two hours a year with kids. And so we started eSports, the bravest company, on the idea of let's create a safe environment for kids to learn how to play video games and get coached at the same time and make it okay. Because one of the things that's happened is when we talk about macro trends, these things are so big, they hide in plain sight is on the one hand, even the media is sending the three scare stories, Mm. video games make kids overweight, video (laughs) games turn kids into rage monsters and video games are a huge waste of time. Well, let's flip over to something else. Since parents are keeping their kids where they are, you know, had to know where they are at all times, team sports became the de facto way to socialize and exercise our children. Mm -hmm. Now, think of the big schools. Think of your power conferences, right? Your UCLA's, your Arizona State's, Michigan, the whole SEC. The power five conferences have not added a sports team in 50 years. We have doubled our population and tripled the number of kids going to college over that period of time. In 1984, when I went to Arizona State, it was the largest in-person campus in the country, 19,000 students. Today, that's a small college. I was going to say. It's 105,000 students. Wow. One baseball team, one football team, one basketball team. I do the other sports. How many kids actually have access to collegiate sports or high school sports? We have a a high school down the road here with 4,500 students. No, same. same. Yeah. One basketball, one baseball, one football, one, you go down the list. According to the Aspen Institute in January of 2020, pre-COVID, by 11 years old, 70% 70% of kids are falling out of team sports. I mean, that's just We shocking. know where they're ending up yeah. in video games. And for me, the, the gap that happened as a result of that is one of the most important relationships in a child's life. Um, John Hopkins did a, published a study on this of things you can do to build resiliency in children is you need an adult in your life who is not a parent and not a teacher mm-hmm. that cares about your well-being. That used to be your coach. So if you're not in team sports anymore and you don't have access to a coach, where are you getting that guiding adult that you can talk to that cares about your well-being? And the flip side of video games is to keep people safe, especially kids. We will never introduce you to somebody online you don't know who could walk over to your house and meet you. That's creepy and dangerous. So what does that mean if you flip it around? Video games systematically isolate people to keep them safe. So to play with friends, you have to already have them. Mm. That's so. It's interesting. If you're the kid on the bench that never gets to play, how many friends you got? Turns out not many. Yeah. So when kids fall out and they fall in the game and they get stuck. So we wanted to create a safer environment where kids can come together and actually meet people they could hang out with and make a friend. And that started with, our in-person leagues and our programming and working with the boys and girls clubs, because there's an organization that cares deeply about children and giving them a safe environment. And if we wanted to bring in programming that would resonate with the kids because we are seeing that nationally is the kids aren't going to these wonderful community centers. They're staying home playing video games by themselves. So we wanted to put the video games in an environment where the kids would want to go and the appeal to them is coaching to get better. Cause I haven't met anybody that games that doesn't want to get better. There's like a huge thing about that. And we look at our programming was designed to address those three things. Mm-hmm. 
hey, weight loss is, you know, weight's really about diet and what we've done there and understanding the type of physical fitness that gamers want. They don't want to be in teams. A ball enforces a hierarchy. I, I saw this in some of the camps we were on. We roll a ball out and instantly the big kids grab the ball. The little kids walk. I love gamers. They'll walk away. They will freaking <laughs> walk away. There is no shame. They're like, I'm not playing that. That's stupid. And they'll, they'll just leave. And you're like, wow, amazing. Cause they know they're just, it, it's stupid. But if you give them an obstacle course or you give them like a ninja course or you give them like a seven minute, something where they're comparing themselves against who they were yesterday, not who somebody else is today. They want to be fit. They'll work out, man. They'll Mm -hmm. sweat and they'll work harder than some of the athletes will. They're motivated. But what they won't play is a game that is geared against them. They can't win. And that I respect them for. And so to get them involved in, you know, getting them fit is a diet exercise and getting the right kind of individual fitness that resonates with them. And it takes a little more work, but it's well worth it. And then you get down to, you know, the whole emotional component and that I'm a huge fan of in-person gaming um, for that reason is that there's this, this weird factor called synthetic autism. Mm-hmm. And what it boils down to is, and we've had kids in our program where the parents have like, my son is not autistic. We had him tested. What it boils down to is that uh, you you might know this, Kevin, but human beings were like the only animals that have scholar whites of the eyes. Yes. Why? Why is it important for human beings to know what human beings are looking at? Hmm. I mean, it turns out we constantly shape each other's behaviors. So one of the magical things about being a homo sapien, um, Yuval Harari, like I love his book, Sapiens. We have programmable behaviors. I cannot overstate how significant that is. We don't, our behavior doesn't evolve with DNA transformation. It evolves within our own lifetime. Mm -hmm. We are infinitely adaptable. So how do you balance that? We do it for each other. So my behavior affects your behavior and vice versa. We have these cues. And so what we would see in game truck is there's this really interesting environment. Let's say there's some music playing and you like the music. I could see you like the music. That's why it's important. I'm reading your expressions. I like it more. And if you like it more, you see that I like it more. We begin to amplify each other. And now we really like that music. And it becomes a point of common interest in bonding. But let's say you don't like the music. I'll know before you say a word, you don't like it. And then I can self-protect. The negative energy goes to ground. So we nerf it. So we get to game trick parties. We get this huge ceiling of energy and enthusiasm, but we get none of the negativity online. When people get online, what happens is now there's a piece of glass. I can't see you. I may not even be able to hear you very well. In a lot of games, we don't chat with each with the people we're competing with, mm-hmm. right? So we, we turn it off. We, so I only have the glass. So I have no idea how my behavior affects you. So now I'm like, it's like playing hockey on a lake with no boundary. That puck can go anywhere. And so what happens is that people that spend too much time in front of glass lose the connection of how their behavior affects other people and they start treating other people like things. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the number one indicators of Asperger's and autism. Now, the good news is if you bring people that are suffering from that back into a social environment, especially kids, they'll begin to coach each other and help each other because we're wired to get along and it doesn't take very long for them to begin to self-correct. So with proper support, they can begin to reintegrate and develop more. And and there's some intentional things like social stories and some specific things you can do, but basically you got to get back together with other people and then you'll learn. And like one of my stories that 
why I do this is this kid, William. Mm-hmm. So he joins our, our league where they were hosting it at Dave and Buster's and, uh, you know, wanted to learn smash. And it was his mom's telling me like, he's not autistic. I've had him tested. So here's a poor single mom working like three jobs to keep ends together. Dad's not in the story, which is sad. This kid's like never had a friend. And right away, it's not just that he gets too upset. He gets too happy. It's like, Hey, you know, Hey, it's Okay but the kids like bond with them and, the, and through playing and through the way they're interacting and the way that the thing runs at 11 years old, William got invited to his first birthday party. Wow. You got kids. Yep. Think about that. Yeah. Did you want to wait till your kid were 11 to be invited to a birthday party? Oh no. Goodness. No. <laughs> That's what's going on in this country. There's millions of Williams and you know, I, there's a, a great nonprofit um, news story and Brett Hagler is the founder there. And they make these incredible cement 3d printed homes in like Guatemala. And, and you know, like, how do we create affordable housing for people? Mm-hmm. And their theory is do from one, what you wish you could do for everyone. Start where you can with what you have. So for us in this program, we, we really wanted to reach these kids that were isolated. And, and as the story goes, 2020 of course and then covid (laughs) you shall not meet in person Um, so i'm curious really quick just how did so obviously you guys are all on the on you know on the upswing with game truck going into 2020 march 2020 hits and all of a sudden everything is is shut down people are are more isolated than ever and we kind of try to figure out you know through zoom through google meets through whatever we try to figure out how to maintain that face-to-face contact and so I'm, i'm just curious how did you end up tackling that with either with bravest or with game truck and how how much how challenging was it for you i think it's a really interesting to me it's an interesting story we live because we lived through it it'd be maybe more entertaining if we hadn't but we lived um there's no business plan that says go to no revenue with three days notice right right just stop you're you're done um so the credit to our franchisees that everybody sort of like hold on um it was tough we did have to lay some people off uh but we were in the game industry, like right up. So we were buying like game equipment already and streaming equipment already because, you know, you can't be in esports and not stream or like, okay, we got to figure out Twitch. How do we do? So even though we were already um, focused on in person, we were very focused on understanding the technology and how do we add value to the industry. And our vision was to create a bridge for these kids because we started seeing this incredibly rapid rate of colleges offering esports teams and scholarships mm-hmm. we're like let's help kids find that path and um we've always worked at sort of the elementary middle school level and we could see the high school level form we're like our wheelhouse is sort of in here in middle school and elementary and then boom everything shuts down and so we said well we're really a human connection company we're really about um bringing people together and one there was one oddity we were uh, a wonderful uh, partner, Melissa Beer from Rebel Events, tracked me down on LinkedIn saying, um, we need uh, esports for college activities. And believe it or not, nobody was doing it. Like nobody was hmm. doing that piece and nobody could figure it out. And she had found me through Game Truck. And I'm like, well, 
we actually have something way better than game truck for colleges. And what we learned was that um, there was a challenge with Bravest that the parents still didn't want to know about video games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they still had the, 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 the emotional connection. I'm like, look, we can make it healthy emotionally. We know how to keep them fit. We're struggling with parents feeling like gaming is a waste of time. But when the parents are out of the picture, um, the kids want the gaming. And so at the collegiate level, they saw, and I saw this great quote from um, uh, one of our, our, our best customers at Colorado School of Mines. When kids, what they've seen, when the kids engage in gaming, they have a greater satisfaction for their degrees. They're more likely to graduate. So the game, so it's, it's this simple, Kevin. People that like to play with technology want to learn how to make it. Yeah, no, that's true. It's it's true. And when they get more chances to play with it and they find it personally satisfying, they get even more engaged with it and they want to keep going. And that's the lever. So when parents are like, this is a waste of time, kids don't hear the gaming is a waste of time. They hear, oh, you mean tackling hard problems, developing skills and persisting till I overcome is a waste of time? Okay, I guess that's a waste of time. Because the, the, that's what a game is to a kid, mm-hmm. right? Is this hard challenge. I have to get good enough. I have to learn how to do it. And I'll persist till I overcome is what we've engineered the games to be for the kids, for all the players, really. Yeah. So we're like, hey, parents, it's not a waste of time. It could lead to college. It was a big deal. So we're doing these college events and it's starting to like really go like, holy cow. We had like 750 kids at Washington State show up for one of our events. It was nuts. And we're like, okay, there's something here. Then boom, everybody stops back to COVID. And so the team comes together, like, what can we do? And we're like, well, could we run tournaments online? And everybody's like, that's easier than hauling equipment all over the country. Sure. Um, Two days later, we held our very first virtual eSport open for the University of Massachusetts um, at Amherst. And and then it was just like, whoosh. It was, uh, we took off. Like that's, that was just became, we were doing events all over the country, like back to back to back to back for days on end. Man, that's um, interesting, man. That's, that's so crazy to me. I mean, the way you describe parents, I don't know if, if you, if you knew this or not, but like back in, you know, uh, like late 1800s, parents would hate if their kids were reading books even. And so it's so funny to me that like, it's the same reasons right. you bring up, you know, yeah, oh, books will make you stay inside. They'll make you overweight. They'll make you like unhealthy. And you know, you won't be able bookworm. to pay attention. You're a bookworm. Exactly. It's a derogatory term. Exactly. For the longest time. I mean, still is today to this day, but you know, obviously for, for, for a lot of people that kind of can translate directly to video games. You know, you, if a parent doesn't show interest in something a child loves for, it can be a book. It can, it can be video games. It can be really whatever. But the moment a parent says, oh, that's not important that child automatically assumes that whatever I do related to this subject or this, this thing is not important to my, to my, to my parents, to my family. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear. So here's something for your whole audience. Cause yeah. you guys can help me with this because what the number one thing you can all do, because you all understand this and parents that don't game, don't get it at all. Teach your friends how to negotiate the end of game time mm. because parents use the wrong words. They're like, stop the game, turn it off. Like, you know, some games can't be turned off. Yeah. A lot of games can be paused. Some can't. And so for a lot of the, um, a lot of parents, they struggle and they get in this huge fight. They would never walk out in the middle of a baseball game, grab a kid in the middle of a windup and drag him off the pitching mound to go to dinner. But they'll do that with video games all the time Mm. because they don't understand 
they can't see the other players. They only see their kid getting worked up. And they, they don't understand this virtual world that's, you know, like 40% of our persona now, our reputation is all online. And it's only accelerating. It's now probably over 50%. Mm-hmm. So it matters how you interact with other people online. And I've met some really progressive parents and understand that they view gaming as a gateway to teach your kids how to responsibly build an online persona and manage it. What email address are you going to pick? That's going to stick with you for a very long time. Yes. You know, reputation. How do you interact with people? How do you keep yourself safe? So you can flip it and go, this is an amazing platform. And But that number one thing of which games can be paused, which ones can be saved, which ones can be stopped. And helping people understand will get rid of so much friction at home. And the other stat is like nine out of 10 parents will go watch their kids play a sport. Only one out of 10 will sit down and actually play a video game with them. Play a game with your kid. Get in there. And if you're like, oh, but I suck. Great. (laughs) Teach them how to lose with grace and dignity. Role model for them what it looks like to struggle with something and learn. They need to see it from somebody they respect. So if your friends and people listening to this can help your other friends, let me explain to you how to end game time without a fight. And I'll give you one other tip from the game truck crew, because we end 3000 parties a month without a fight. We're very good at it. Flick the light switch, please. Don't yell at them. Don't scream at them or walk in and touch them on the shoulder gently to get their attention. Mm -hmm. If you change the ambiance around them, they'll realize something's going on. And you want their attention and 99.9% of the time they'll turn and call me, look at you and go, what? <laughs> and they go, Hey, we got to go. It's dinner time. And I always encourage to negotiate the end of the game before they start. Yes. If it's a hard stop, like we're leaving, pick a different game. Cause in my experience, gamers will pick something to play. Like dude, who only has one game? Nobody. We all have different games. Yeah. You're like, who doesn't have like a DS somewhere like, all right, I got a phone. You got a phone, right? I'll do this instead, right? Exactly. Pick something to end on time if you negotiate it up front. So everybody can share that. And we can start cutting down the misery that's happening in households. And then maybe people will start listening more about, tell me more about the C-Sports thing. It sounds kind of interesting. Exactly. When people aren't screaming in their face, they're more open to new ideas. But we get back into sports. We get back into let's do things online. We're hosting these, these events and it became all about bringing professional production to private tournaments. So we make bad gameplay really fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Less of an obstacle, more of an opportunity, right? Sure. Like only 1% of professionals get professional commentary. We do it for exactly. anybody. Exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, oh, man, <laughs> anybody commentating on my gameplay, that's going to be a rough watch for anybody going, but <laughs> you'd be surprised. And the players are like, they love it. They're like, this is amazing. You feel we did, we did that at little league. We bring out the speakers and somebody calls a game. You're like, this is cool. People are paying attention to me. Okay, so and, um, it, it, it's interesting you, you you bring that up. I'm just I'm just curious. You know, in the middle of a pandemic and everything, you, you you move on to virtual events more often than not. Did you end up finding new revenue streams and and, and ways to kind of implement you know uh, different ways to to kind of make some money back? And you know, the pandemic you know brought your revenue down to zero pretty much, right? And so coming oh, into yeah, a virtual cool. world was a different kind of of beast for you. Uh, Mm-hmm. You you solve new problems. W- would you say it's just as successful as your in-person events, or is that still kind of like the boon for you guys? Well, you know, Game Truck's a much more mature business. I mean, it's been around for 15 years, and it's got a much bigger footprint. So 
when it came back, it came back like tidal wave, which was awesome. Like so happy to see people again. Um, what it did for Bravest is it went from this obscure what to you know hundreds, if not thousands, of colleges know who we are now, mm-hmm. and we've been established in a space, um, and people love what we do. So Bravest definitely kept the whole ship afloat. It was a total team effort. And it was really interesting because vision matters. Like your idea of who you are and what you're trying to achieve is really important because one of the things we saw with Game Truck was that a lot of the franchise owners and they're wonderful people saw themselves as people that take equipment to a place to do an event. And as soon as they couldn't do that anymore, they were done. They just, they couldn't do anything. But the bravest team started with a different vision. It was, you know, we help connect people mm-hmm. and we help, we throw events. Like our biggest thing is inclusion. Yes, you can play. So we, we run events totally different than anybody else. You know, people are like, you got to write like all these things to get in. We're like, we want you here. Right. Here's our dirty secret. I don't really care about winners that much, Kevin. <laughs> winners are easy to get. And I'm a software guy. So what is a tournament? It's a list sort. We're trying to find number one. And it's a lossy list sort at that because we throw away everybody who's not number one. Do you know there's lots of ways to sort lists? Yeah. And not all of them are lossy. So when we run tournaments, we're focused on how do we create the maximum amount of play for the maximum amount of participants? And how do we get everybody in? Our thing is if you show up, you're getting in and you're going to play. Now, we don't want chaos, but we're very good at managing chaos. And so for us, the team was like, we can do this online. And they immediately pivoted without missing a beat. We took the same format and made it available to the game truck owners and showed them how to run it. And they just couldn't do it Mm. because it wasn't driving equipment to an event to do a thing. It didn't fit their vision, their identity of who they were. They weren't people that created environments where you could make a friend. They were people that brought equipment to do parties. That started the beginning of this year. We started reimagining what Game Truck really is so that it's not defined by its equipment. It's defined by the affect we have on people because that's what Bravest is. Mm-hmm. Bravest is, you say, esports. What's community? We feel connected to people. Well, how do you connect people? All of our events are engineered to create social connection and communication between people. We'll get winners. We're good. You know, winners are easy to get. What we really want is we want friends. We want to help people make friends and feel connected to the other people in their community. And that piece of the puzzle is what we do that's probably different than anybody else. I mean, it's just it's insane how how they kind of uh, you know formed off each. I mean, like Bravest obviously kind of helping Game Truck in 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 the midst of a pandemic is just kind of a a great kind of story between you know sister corporations and game companies kind of figuring it out together. And I'm just I, I'm just curious, what would you say right now after 15 years of Game Truck, a few years with Bravest, what would you say is the biggest achievement you've had with either? That's a tough question, I know. So. It's hard to quantify because like all the birthday parties are individual stories. And I can think of so many stories. And when you make people happy and they're grateful, it's just an unbelievable achievement. So I feel incredibly blessed. But it is achievement is an accomplishment. And so the probably one that I would look at as a company mm-hmm. was securing sort of the partnership with Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Because look, we're tiny, right? Like, you know, 15 million in revenue system-wide numbers there's a multi-billion dollar global corporation and they partnered with us and um they told us we were the longest partnership they've had with any company they've worked with wow and we're not a game maker which is weird we're not a retailer 
Um, but you know, they were, uh, have been a, just a valuable partner for years. Um, and you know, they're a wonderfully creative organization, but that was like a dream. Like, man, wouldn't it be great someday if we got to work with Nintendo and son of a gun, we get to work <laughs> with Nintendo and it's been awesome. Um, just wonderful people to work with and, um, a lot of value alignment. Like that's our like for me, like I love our field box full of switches. We'll show up, set it up. They'll be like, oh, people are like, oh, one switch? I'm like, no, everybody gets one here. <laughs> and we hand them out like candy. Like everybody has one. Let's play. Let's go. And um, that's tremendous. For Bravis, um, it was a couple of them. And it was the human story. So we did this thing for fan fusion. So it was the comic con in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time we did our open format for adults. So we had developed this for kids because I don't know if you know this, but a lot of tournaments, they suck. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you get down to the end and it's like a couple of people and even our wonderful 250 kid Mario Kart tournament, eight hours later, we're at the end of the gym and it's like two competitors. The parents are all like, uh, we're all sweating to death. We're like, God, when's this thing going to be over? And the poor kid that loses rage spikes his controller, sprints out of the gym crying. And we're like, oh boy, magnificent. <laughs> you know? like, That's what we want. Like, there's got to be a better way. So, we came up with a tournament format that is uh, a, a level set or qualifiers. You compete for a pin, you get the pin, then the pin winners get to compete for a medal like every half hour or so. And at the end of the day, the medalists compete for the trophy. So we're accumulating winners. We're not eliminating losers. And so what will happen over the day is more and more people play. There's more and more winners. So the rounds get more and more competitive as the day goes Mm -hmm. on because we're filtering for the best players sorted against each other. So this thing starts building momentum. And we're like, dude, like 15,000 people went through our booth. It was nuts. Like one in four people that went to Comic-Con went through our booth. And at the end of every day, they were like, they were stretched down the aisles. The food vendors were out of sold out of food. Wow. Like there were people in the main, we were in the basement. Like we were in the like, forget me corner of that. And we had the crowd. It was insane. And people were coming from like the third floor upstairs where the celebrities were to come down and go, what is this all about? What's going on? I don't know. We're just (laughs) playing video games. Um, And there was this one kid, Steven, um, who'd come from New Mexico. He spent four days on the booth. Wow. Four days. Like he just, every day he'd roll, he'd come in, sit down and play. We're like, hey dude, how's it going? And you know, we'd see him and he'd play and, and the kids were hanging out because they'd wear the pins or the medals and they began to hang out together. Sunday night, Stephen rolls up to me in a wheelchair with his parents flanking him to thank me for hosting this event because he found out I was the one that started the company and I was responsible for it because he'd met all the coaches and hung out with them. And he goes, I'm going to go back to New Mexico and I'm going to get involved in my smash community. Wow. Because I now know I can do it. I had no idea and no one on the team did that Steven needed a wheelchair to get around. Wow. He was just another gamer. And to me, that's the power of games. This is Kevin, what, where are young men and women learning to compete with each other as equals and still respect each other? Video games right now. Yeah. It's not happening in sports. No. So when we see people that come in and it's all that matters is what you can do, not who you are, not where you came from, not what you look like. 
it's just what, you know, you can just participate and, you know, put your ideal self out there. I think it's super powerful. So when I look at that, creating those opportunities is our biggest accomplishment. When we include people that have been excluded by everybody else, that's why we say, yes, you can play. That's that's Scott. You have no idea. You're you're tossing out profound ideas left and right here about just just the philosophy behind gaming, and I'm all for it. I mean, you've answered every question I've thrown at you. I, I, I've got one more, one last question for you. And it's kind of a broad one, but if you want to try and keep yeah, it short, fine. you're more than welcome to. But um, the 2010. I'm not very. I'm not good at being short. No, so no, I apologize, that's, that's but fine. I'm happy to answer. That's fine. So obviously, the 2020s started off on a rocky foot, but. You know, it's it's it looks like it's a promising decade to come for gaming and, and esports. What is your ideal future look like for Game Truck and Bravest Esports? What's the ideal future for oh, those wow, two companies? That's great. You know, um, I think we really have a, a, a. I'm excited about the mission we have for Game Truck, and we've gotten a lot of interest and. I believe that over these next 10 years, we're going to, we're going to triple the size of our, our system. Uh, I think the demand is there. The, uh, the focus we have now on, we've really gotten a handle on what we can do to help like have an emotional impact for our clients, like really make it impactful for them. And um, I think that's going to be endless. I think that's going to be like one of those callings. It's like, there's just not, you're never going to have too much love and joy in your life. Mm-hmm. And so to the degree that we can help create amazing experiences that you get to share with the people that are closest to you, and we get to amplify that for you, I think is going to be uh, more people are going to want to do that. It used to be about being in the video game industry. I'm like, I think that's a small vision. I think the bigger vision is we want to be facilitators of creating more love and connection um, within family and friends. And we can use games to do that because when we're active, especially for boys, when they're active is when they're the most open and they're the most receptive um, and they feel the most alive. And we really believe that we can make a difference there and be part of that. And for Bravis, I think the vision is equally as ambitious is that we want to be a catalyst to help transform gaming into within the family so that it's a legitimate, well-understood that parents have the information to keep it healthy, um, keep it balanced, but also support their kids. Because I believe our economic future looks like gaming, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, mm-hmm. I don't know about your company, my company, men and women work together, right? Yep. Well, uh, and I don't know about you, but we compete with companies that are owned and run by women and we respect each other and we should. And so gaming can teach us how to do those things. Technology is an integral part of everything we do. It's like the purpose of competition is to teach. The purpose of competition is to help people learn how to perform under pressure, right? To be your best when your best is most needed. That is a highly transferable skill. And if we say only sports is allowed to have that, we're throwing away one of the most valuable tools humanity has ever created. I think video games should own that. We can do it better and are doing it better. And we look like what the future looks like. That's, I think, the other reason so many kids are intuiting it. 
I've never had to throw anything at anybody I work with mm-hmm. as hard as I could throw it, nor have I had anybody throw anything at me and have it be part of the job or kick things, right? Like I get the value and the historic idealism of the, the, the physical prowess of sports. Like, look, I, the Suns are winning in basketball right now and they're fun to watch. Mm-hmm. However, the purpose of competition is not only entertainment. It's also about preparing human beings to go to their edge to be their best when it's needed. And we need each other to do that. And that's what you really get. Like there's the, it's baked into our psychology, our biology and our culture. All brains are there. They have two hemispheres. Mm-hmm. There's no quad brain. There's no unibrain. There's no tri-brain. It's always two. Why two? One half for routinization, one half for novelty in the balance of pushing against each other in your eyes. Let's go back to your eyes. Why can't human beings see combinations of red and green? It's called opponent processing theory mm-hmm. is that our rods and cones are set up in opposition to each other. And it's so we can detect ripe fruit. And what that boils down to is that the moment the apple tips over from green to red, it's safe to eat. You get a better result. Mm-hmm. That's what competition is, is we push on each other to become the best we're capable of. Not hierarchies of dominance, but they're more ladders of competence. Is that it's what can we do to help each other become better? And I believe gaming is the best possible platform to teach that lesson to the most number of people. So for me, I would love to see where we've got every kid has the opportunity to participate in balanced coach competition at the recreational level through parks and recs across the country at their middle schools so that there's no bench. I want, yes, you can play to become gaming's like mantra. Mm -hmm. We can all play. Nobody has to be left out. And so to a certain degree, that's my, the only negativity I have about the high school is replicating what we have in high school and collegiate athletics, more elite competition for elite competitors, I think is well-served. What I want is inclusive competition that helps people become their best and realize that learning how to be your best is transferable. You could do it here. You could do it in your career. You could do it in relationships. You could do it in your family. Is being somebody that's dependable and reliable and can perform under pressure, super transferable skill. Applies into some just learning how to respect each other better. Kevin, I don't know what problems that's going to solve, but I got to believe it's going to help with a bunch of them. I mean, it can't, I think, it can't be any worse. Right. I don't, I can't believe it'll make it worse. No, I, I think that that's the piece where we connect together and learn that we help each other become better. That's the vision I want to see for Bravest Esports, that our programming is available to any community that wants it so that they can help their kids achieve their potential. Cause that's ultimately what we should be doing. Scott, if you haven't done a Ted talk yet, you need to. I'm going to get in touch with those. To. <laughs> I'll get in touch with those folks and cuz you 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 put into perspective just the philosophy and, and mindset of gaming that we need to have moving forward and I, and I love it. So Scott, I, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts cuz honestly it is it is one of the most insightful interviews I've had the privilege of being a part of in terms of just the mindset of of, of a, how, you, how you run an, a proper gaming company and how you you know, target your, your appropriate audience. And really you've, you've hit it off with a plum. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and, and, and giving us your, your perspective. 
Well, thank you for having me. It was wonderful spending time talking to you, but thank you for so much time. No, I no really problem. I really appreciate it. No problem. He's, of course, Scott Novus. You can follow him on social media at Scott Novus. GameTruckParty.com to find any Game Truck services near you. Of course, Bravest.com. Follow Bravest Esports on Twitter as well. We'll link all this in the podcast description below. But he is Scott Novus, the founder of Game Truck and Bravest Esports. And I'm Kevin Correa, just a guy right here on the Esports Network podcast. Whoa.